Hello, everyone. I'm John Marvin, your host of Insight, a podcast series dedicated to learning about the challenges and opportunities in the optical and optometric industry. Today, we are excited to have as our guest, Mr. Robert or Bob Schultz, who is the president and CEO of Vision One Credit Union. And uh, thank you, Bob, for joining us today. Sure. Glad to be here. I'd like for you to take a little moment. A lot of people probably know of Vision One Credit Union, uh, but maybe some aren't as familiar with you and your background and, and how you got to be in that position. Why don't you take a little bit, tell us a little bit about your background and career and, and how you got to be president? Well, I am a third generation banker and I've got over 35 years of commercial banking experience, 18 of which here at Vision One financing private optometric practices. And I came to Vision One uh, to work. I, I like the fact that it's a niche bank catering to an underserved industry. So we only bank independent ODs, independent practitioners. Well, and how did it get started? How did Vision One Credit Union get started? Well, Vision One was founded by independent doctors in 1951. It uh, was by ODs for ODs. It's a not-for-profit uh, my, my board of directors are all ODs, they're all volunteers, and they're all independent practice owners. And uh, the institution itself is owned by independent optometry. By that, I mean we're owned by our depositors as a co-op, uh, and our depositors only come from independent optometry. And we value relationship over the career of the practice versus a transaction orientation. And we are actually invested in the career outcome of, of the practitioner, not just the next transaction. And that's what I like about it. Uh, transaction orientation is just grinding out deals. Career orientation has more to do like the independent doc that has, you know, seen three generations of patients and is really, you know, invested in good, good eyesight and eye care and quality for that whole family. That's that's the way we feel and, and act towards independent practitioner. Uh, we have specific knowledge of, of your optometric practice. You don't have to explain how your practice works to us. You said earlier you've been with Vision One for 18 years. Is that right? Correct. And at all that time, has it been as president? Yes. So I'm really curious, over those 18 years, what have you seen have been the biggest changes in this profession? Oh, gosh. The, big, the biggest changes have to do with, I guess, the, uh, the advent uh, of more commercial optometry, the level of competitiveness in the marketplace, and how the private practitioners need to kind of step their game up to, to be able to compete effectively. Many doctors do, and many doctors do very, very well, and uh, other doctors need, need to bring their game up. You know, recently, you and I had the opportunity to visit and we spent out quite a bit of time talking about how a practice is valued and how you determine the value of a practice. And I think that um, we're both in agreement that there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. And uh, I, in my position, I see a lot of doctors who are ready to sell their practice and, and retire, and they're looking for someone to, I just had one contact me today to say, I'm, I'm interested in buying a practice. How do you go about doing that? So you really... Uh, impressed me with your discussion about how you set the value of a practice. And uh, so would you take a little bit and uh, talk about that? 
Well, it's interesting. I know we had the conversation uh, a month or two ago, but we don't generally publish the fact that we we do valuations or we know valuations, but it is a part of what we do. We just kind of keep it to ourselves. The way we look at it and the way the appraisers look at it and the the reputable consultants look at it is it's a, a value is a multiple of practice cash flow. And what we do is we calculate the net cash flow, including uh, the cost, a proxy cost for all of the ODs that are on staff. We then normalize the earnings as needed, which would include a rent. So if you own your own building, you're not charging yourself rent. We've got to put a market rent factor in. We normalize the owner's salaries. Uh, we try to remove as many personal expenses as the doctor can actually find and substantiate. And, and other items from there. At that point, we then gauge the demand for the practice in the area, you know, rural versus urban, suburban, uh, and select a relevant factor, which is a multiple, and apply that. We actually use an after-tax after cash flow model, but uh, there's many models out there that use a pre-tax uh, basis. And then we, then we validate the results against the debt service model, or in other words, would we finance the practice for a typical buyer? And then once we've kind of met all those criteria, we have a, a pretty good, reasonable understanding of value. What do, when you talk to doctors, what do you see as their biggest misconceptions about how what their practice is worth? I'm not sure if it's really misconceptions, but they, they, there's no, they don't know how to value a practice. They don't know um, what a practice is worth and what drives value. So there is really that most doctors don't have a relevant measure of value so they rely on percentage of gross or you know also known as percentage of revenues as a valuation methodology which is very unreliable and i think the other misconception is that um and my buddy uh, kirk smith said this uh, kirk smith said uh, the biggest lie in college was that the, the practice will fully fund retirement uh and really only fund about a third of it uh, that's got to come as a big surprise to a lot of people. Especially when they're 65 years old and they figure it out. Yeah. Uh, so has the way a practice is valued, has that changed much over the years, or is it pretty much no. a constant? No, it, 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 it's not. Well, for those that knew how to value practices, it hasn't changed. For those that didn't, it seems to have changed quite a bit. But practices really were always any business, whether it be a practice or otherwise, it is is a based uh, value is based on a multiple of cash flow. It's always been the right way. ODs are beginning to understand that. I think partly because private equity is is valuing practices on that basis also. Uh, so you know, there's and we're we're out there discussing it. Reputable consultants are, and you know, doctors need to understand it. And so the way you determine cash flow, you walked through a few things earlier, make sure I understand. The way you determine cash flow is you take out all of the payments or, or distribution of money that's going to a doctor, owner, is that right? And, and, and personal expenses, possibly? Yes. Um, we, we start with uh, EBITDA, which is earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And then we look at the uh, amount of money, the, the compensation that the owner's taking, 
And a lot of doctors don't even know their full compensation because the difference between compensation and salary, salary is the amount you take out in cash, you know, through payroll, but then you might have your car in there, you might have your medical insurance in there, your 401k in there. And unfortunately, uh, most doctors do not account for their compensation in one area of the P&L, and they've got to look at five, 10 different areas to figure it out. Some, some don't even know it, how much they're actually taking out of the practice. So what, in, what direction or ideas, suggestions can you give doctors to improve the overall value of the practice? Well... So that when they get ready to sell, that they actually get the they maximize the amount of money they can get out of it. Well, let me take a step back on that real, real quick, if I could. Um, talking about the important components to you need to understand the important components to value. One is operational efficiency, and that's the practice cash flow without any doctor costs or any doctor compensation uh, in there. So you want to eliminate that, and that needs to be thirty percent of collected revenue or greater. And the other is going to be doctor efficiency, how much revenue can be produced by one full-time OD, whether it be an associate or an owner, it doesn't really matter. And so those, those will, if you were to hit on both of those areas, it's going to create, uh, uh, do well with that. It's going to create a lot of value for the practice. Also, that's also known as creating good margins in the practice. Again, the operational efficiency and the doctor efficiency. You also want to have positive trending regarding the revenue and growing the patient base. And, I, and that really sums it up. I mean, if you, you hit on those areas, you're going to do well. Appreciate that. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back with Bob Schultz of Vision One Credit Union. America, let me tell you about Sergeant Greg Anderson. Served two tours in Afghanistan, Bronze Star and Purple Heart recipient, and unemployed. The unemployment rate among transitioning service members is unacceptably high, much higher than the general population. Veterans are a proven commodity. They're mature, reliable, and hardworking. They deserve a chance to get back to work after serving their country. Do you really want to honor a veteran? Hire one. Welcome back. Thank you, Bob, for going through that that process of how you determine both, you said operational efficiency and doctor efficiency. Is that right? Correct. And talk a little bit more about doctor efficiency, because I found that really interesting when I first heard about it. Well, the way we look at doctor efficiency and the way most reputable consultants look at it is how much revenue can be produced by one full-time equivalent doctor. Full-time equivalent doctors, doctor working 40 hours a week, and you can calculate what you do is you take the you, you you calculate the number of full-time equivalent doctors you have. Could be one doctor, could be one and a half doctors, it could be two doctors, could be four doctors. Whatever it is, you take that number, the full-time equivalent, and you in the numerator the numerator you put collected revenue. The denominator is the full-time number of full-time equivalent doctors, and you just come out with. You want to come out with 700,000 or greater to be efficient. We've seen practices in the 800,000, 900,000, a million range. And that means one full-time equivalent doctor produces at least $700,000 in gross revenue. In collected revenue. In collected revenue. Okay. Yes. We only deal with what we can spend in the banking world. 
<laughs> tangible dollars. Now, when I say that, that that doesn't it's not just clinical revenue, collected revenue, it, it's dispensary. Because if you believe, like I do, that that a lot of the dispensary revenue originates in the clinic, you want to you want to, you know, it, it's all collected revenue for the practice. So if I'm if I own a practice and I work um, five days a week and I put in an eight-hour day, uh, but I have an associate who comes in twice a week and uh, we see patients together, how would I go about cal- – how many full-time equivalents do I have? Uh, it sounds like about maybe 1.4. What we do is we'll say, okay, there's, there's, there's five days plus two days is seven divided by five. Okay, because I'm sure some people don't don't understand how to calculate a full time equivalent. That's true, and um, that would apply the same with staff. I would imagine. True, true. And and in the operational efficiency, how do you calculate payroll into that, or your staff and associates, or is that just a part of taking other things out and whatever you've got left? Well, ultimately, we're going to look at both sides. We're looking at the operational piece. We're looking at the doctor piece. You're getting into more of a break-even analysis with respect to the to the uh, the doctors themselves. Part of that's going to deal with average patient revenue per full exam, the margins, you know, the operational efficiency of the practice. If the practice has a lot of operational efficiency, thirty percent or greater, then the break-even point on revenues with respect to a, a, uh, an associate is going to be much, much less. So if, they're, if, if, so if you've got 30% operational efficiency and the doctor is producing 700000 you can take that um, 30% times the 700000 less the cost of the associate, and then the rest come, goes to your pocket pre-tax. So... A lot of this discussion has been how you determine the value of a practice, and building value is very important. You've kind of explained some of the ways that you do about doing that. But there's a big difference in building value in a practice and building wealth for yes. yourself. And uh, could you talk a little bit about that and those differences? Yes, th- there's differences, and there's also some common aspects. Um, in my view of it, growing value means growing practice cash flow without the consideration of debt. I mean, you can grow cash flow, but if it takes so much debt to do it, then you're not building overall value. So um, building wealth occurs when you grow practice cash flow and you eliminate debt. So if you take the example of buying a house, if I buy a house for, I don't know, $500,000 and I've got a loan on it for $400,000, then I've got $100,000 in equity. Now, if I pre, if the, the value of the asset, or in this case, the value of the practice and or the house goes up to a million dollars and I sell it and the debt's at 400,000, then I can put in my pocket 600,000, a million less 400,000. On the other hand, uh, to build more wealth, what I can do is I, if the asset appreciates to a million dollars and I paid that 400,000 down to zero, I can now sell that house for a million or that practice either way for a million dollars and there's no debt to pay off. It's already been paid off. So I can put a million dollars pre-tax into my pocket. And that's so, so building wealth has a lot to do with making sure that asset appreciates or the value of the practice keeps coming up 
based on the margins as we as we discussed, as well as a timely and or accelerated reduction of debt. So, and I end up hearing from a lot of young docs who are interested in buying someone's practice. Oftentimes, they're, they get into discussion with the seller before they've ever had any help or consultation uh, with someone who knows how to direct them into properly purchasing a practice. Oftentimes, they spend way too much money for a practice, and there's oftentimes there's a lot of people more than willing to, to give them the money to buy it. How would you advise that 30-year-old doctor who's now decided they want to buy their own practice? Mm-hmm. How would you guide them through that, that process of getting into a negotiation to purchase and uh, then what you would look for as the lender in that so that they can have a better understanding? I think hey, probably everyone's comfortable with how you buy a car, but buying a practice mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. quite a bit different. Okay. Well, first of all, um, one rule that good bankers understand is that easy money is not good money. Um, You want to make sure that the return on investment is there. And for younger docs getting in, um, we look at, and they need to look at the fact that they, they need X amount to live on. And that includes payment of student debt. When I first started 18 years ago, the average student debt was about 125,000. We're now seeing 300,000, 350,000 coming out of uh, optometry school. It includes undergrad as well as you know graduate school, and, and the, you know the optometry program. So it, it's you know it's a big factor, and so they need to understand that. And it's counterintuitive for a lot of these younger docs. They think, well, I've got all this student debt, I can't afford a bigger practice because no one will lend me the money. Well, what they don't realize is because they've got such a large personal overhead, they need a bigger practice that's going to provide more cash flow that's going to allow them to to make their personal payments. So it is counterintuitive. Um, And so what we do often here is we will pre-screen buyers and say, no, you can't buy that $700,000 a year practice. You've got too much personal requirement. You need to go out and get a practice a million dollars or greater Assuming uh, normal industry metrics and margins, that will produce the type of, of, of income that you need. And as an adjunct to that, I would also advise them on how to build wealth and value is that the, the and this goes back to your last point, kind of the strategic practice investment needs to be financed based on the need in the practice. In other words, don't go down to the Expo West or East and buy some fancy piece of equipment. You really can't utilize it and get the cash flow, get the revenue on it. Uh, it should be uh, uh, strategic practice investment should be financed based on need, impact uh, on the on the long term cash flow of the practice, regardless of the debt amount. And tied into that would be a rapid debt reduction program without killing the cash flow of the practice. So there's a lot of kind of requirements to look at, and even though. It's unfortunate that a lot of doctors don't understand the banking process and the finance process, because if they did, they would understand that not all bankers are created equal. And it gets back to relationship versus transaction. Uh, Everything I just explained requires a knowledgeable banker that takes the time to understand your practice finances. And every practice practice is different. Most banks won't do it uh, because they're transaction-oriented, and it's just a matter of doing volume. That's why I like being at Vision One. 
couple of other things I would tell uh, the young optometrist is um, don't stop growing the practice just because you've achieved a good level of salary. I call that like a financial complacency. We see that often. I'm making a good amount of money, so I'm not going to work quite as hard. But then again, I don't really understand how that level of cash flow is going to contribute to the overall practice value and how that practice value is going to contribute to a retirement fund. And until you know all of that, you better not take the, the pedal off the, uh, the gas there. For the young docs, they need to understand that the practice is a means to an end. And the practice, you can practice as you want. You've got that kind of freedom to do that, which is nice, versus other forms of practice. But it's also there to build wealth. And it is the engine. Even though, even though the practice sale generally only results in a third of the retirement funds needed, Throughout your career, you can look at the practice as, as the means to an end and as the revenue or the income generator that allows you to do other investments, such as the practice real estate, buying a second or third practice, getting into a tax deferred like a 401k plan, whatever. And all of those things together are going to build up the amount of retirement fund that you need to get out reasonably when you want. But, um, you know, after a after your career. And you need to understand that because without it, there's no financial context to run the practice. We're talking with Bob Schultz of Vision One Credit Union, and we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about those things that he just brought up, buying land, building a building, maybe multiple practices and all of that. So we'll be right back. Optometry Giving Site is a global charity that funds the establishment of sustainable eye and vision care services so people in underserved communities can help themselves. It's more than just giving sight. It's about transforming lives. By donating, you'll provide funding to train and educate people to become practicing optometrists, as well as establish clinics and vision centers that provide local employment and access to affordable services. Optometry Giving Sight, transforming lives through the gift of vision. Welcome back. We are talking with Bob Schultz, president of Vision One Credit Union. We've talked a lot about how a practice is valued, how you determine the value of a practice, particularly if you're going to sell or in particular if you're trying to buy one. We've also touched on uh, the difference between value and wealth and what that does. What I'd like to ask now about, uh, Bob, is this concept. I get people all the time say, well, I want to buy land and build my own building. I just talked to a young lady optometrist. She's in her mid-30s, and she's interested in buying land and uh, putting up a building. What type of advice would you give someone regarding that? Is that a good idea, really? No. It's a terrible idea. Um, Most doctors that I've seen, well, first of all, the doctors don't have the skills to do that. And if they have the skills, they don't generally have the time. Um, I've had a number of doctors come here to Vision One and say, you know, I built this building and and I did it with, uh, you know, a a big bank. And now they want me to put in another $200,000 and I just don't have it. So the overrun potential is extreme in that situation. And what the doctors don't realize is that 
it's going to take a lot of their time to, to manage the process, to sit down with the architect, decide what they want. And that's time that they're not spending in the practice. So, so oftentimes the revenue of the practice will drop considerably and the cash flow will drop. And then if there's, there's overruns, those banks aren't going to, they're not going to fund that out. They're just looking at you to, uh, to write a check. I, again, people come to me, I need another 200. I need another 500. Uh, it's not, you know, I, I see how much overruns there are in doctors just doing tenant improvement build outs. 50%, 100%, you really can't take that sort of skill or lack thereof to building an entire building. And there's plenty of buildings to buy. That's a good point. You don't have to go out and actually buy land and, and put up right. a brand new structure. You can buy right. a building. Then you can configure it the way you want. And that's enough of a project. Well, and I, I do know some that have done really well, and uh, they've used this as a a wealth building, a long-term financial opportunity for them so that they can sell the practice but keep the building. But uh, this young lady had suggested she was going to build a 3,000-square-foot building, and I said that if you're going to build anything, you should build probably about a 12,000-square-foot and lease out the space that you're not using for your practice. But that brings up a whole nother set of problems in the fact that now you're a landlord. So do you, if someone's determined to do this, do you have advice either way? Sure. You know, part of the problem with, with there's nothing wrong with being a landlord, uh, but, but building the building, uh, if you're going 12,000 feet, you're minimally 2.4 to $3 million into the deal. Um, most practices don't run much over 3,000 square feet. And, you know, in some of the uh, areas where it's less costly to, to maintain real estate and rent real estate, maybe they'll go 5,000 feet. There's a magic number at 50% where you can get an owner-user uh, commercial real estate loan and utilize various programs that will reduce the down payment to, say, 10% as opposed to 20 or 25%. Very few doctors at three million at three million dollars are going to write a check and put down six hundred thousand dollars because most of them don't have that kind of money. Sure. So you really need to skinny down the down payment to do that. You've got to you've got to utilize uh, the practice has got to utilize as an owner user at least fifty percent of the space. Another issue that seems is is purchasing or opening a second or third practice. What is your feeling about that? I think it's a great idea. It's, you know, like Warren Buffett says, you got to do what you know. So don't invest in what you don't know. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not talking against real estate. I'm just saying doing ground-up construction is really difficult. And the, uh, however, you, you do know the practice better than anything. And so if, if you're going to invest, why not invest in another practice, whether it be a, a subsequent practice startup or purchase, or remember that, OD that was four blocks away that was, you know, taking, a, not taking business away from me, but I couldn't really take business away from him or her and they're getting ready to retire. So maybe I need to buy them and maybe I can run both practices together out of one facility and roll them up. And that's extremely lucrative. So I can eliminate competition, grow through acquisition and, and create economies of scale all at the same time. Sounds like that's a much better option than maybe going out and buying an acre of land and, 
and getting into the landlord business. No, absolutely. You know, another issue that I see come up a lot is the fact that people don't start thinking about selling their practice and retiring until their mid fifties. And um, sometimes they've gotten themselves in a situation that's difficult to get out of by the time they want to retire. What, um, what advice would you give someone that's in their mid fifties, really hadn't been given any thought to it, but now wants to start doing things so that they can be able to retire late sixties. Well, it, it, yeah, it's never too late. They need to increase their revenues. They need to improve their margins, as we spoke about earlier. Um, if they're in their 50s, it really depends on how many years you have left. So let's say they're going to go to 65, and let's say they're 50, they got 15 years left, say 10 to 15 years left. Plenty of time to improve margins and improve revenues. Uh, it's probably going to take a consultant to do it, a reputable consultant. Um, plenty of time to buy another practice or start up. It's a little short to do real estate because you need enough time to get through business cycles and, uh, and also get that debt down. So I would probably rule that out with, uh, with a 10-year window, 15, 20 years. 20 years is more optimal for real estate uh, or greater. The, um, so I think really buying uh, or starting up a, another practice location. You can also invest in practice equipment, ophthalmic equipment that allows for additional services and long-term revenue opportunities. One thing they can look at is uh, hiring an associate. Uh, and it doesn't have to be full-time. If you're booked out more than two weeks, maybe you bring in someone for a day to get started and kind of capture that revenue that's not that you're not capturing now. You can also, if you bring in somebody that is say glaucoma certified and not afraid to practice, which a lot of the, uh, the, the uh, younger docs are now, you can, um, you can look for outsourced referrals that you're sending to the MD that you can now, based on the scope of the license and the skill of the associate, you can bring in house. So you can capture new revenue sources that way. You can establish a marketing program. You know, everyone talks about that. Nobody really likes it. I don't like to do it here either. But the reality is, if you think about the local events that you stopped attending decades ago, a lot of times those young docs will be willing to go do that and drum up more patients. So, and again, like I say, there, you, I can't speak enough about improving margins and or hiring a reputable consultant to help you do it. What do you see as the biggest factors in the future over the next five to 10 years? Where do you see this profession going? To the industry? Um, I, I think, I think um, a couple of things. One is the demand for ODs will increase as um, people like myself get older and uh, there will be a growth in the demand for eye care given the, given the aging population. And the projections are based on the MDs, the ophthalmologists in med school now, that that's going to be flat. So the demand is going up and the MDs are remaining constant. So that's going to put more, uh, more patients in the chairs of the ODs. And the OD is the lower cost provider. So I think from a supply and demand standpoint, basic economics, it, it looks favorable for ODs in general. I think private equity will die out as interest rates increase. They're kind of a function of 
uh, the economy being flooded with cash and, and relatively low interest rates. I think they'll also die out when ODs realize that in most cases that they can make more money in the long run by holding on to their practices, which we can talk about another time. Uh, the promise of also uh, maintaining the practice culture proves to be false in those situations. And that the, the independent docs really don't want to leave a legacy of commercial optometry in their wake. It's not desirable. Uh, I think technology will play a big role going forward. And the doctors need to embrace it and utilize it. Don't be afraid of it, but uh, utilize it in your practice uh, to leverage your time, improve your margins, and provide a better patient experience. And the practice owners, the independent practice owners, need to run the practice more as a business and understand how to achieve economies of scale, which means the larger you get, the more money you make because your margins improve. They need to understand that they're in a convenience business. So um, you need to be available and, and open, have open hours when the patients uh, want to come in. They don't have to take off of work or be docked, pay to come see you because then they'll go over to a commercial optometrist. They need to understand how to create volume in the practice. Uh, John, we've talked before, they need to understand inventory turn times and better merchandising. The average inventory turn in an uh, independent practice is 1.6 times. That's pathetic. Most docs don't even know what their, their turn times are or how to, how to uh, measure them, let alone how to move them up. And that's all doable, and that can be done, I think, John, through you, um, or uh, reputable industry consultants can deal with that. And that's, that's critical to improving volume and margins. Uh, and again, the utilization of the technology, both in the dispensary and in, in the exam room. That's great information, Bob. This has really been helpful. I know a lot of people who are going to be listening to this are going to learn quite a bit from this discussion. I really want to thank you for taking the time to be our guest today. Thanks for having me. After listening to this, if someone would like to get in touch with you or someone at Vision One Credit Union, what should they do? Well, anyone can, can give me a call or uh, any of my staff. A lot of my staff know what I know about this. Uh, uh, you can give us a call at 916-363-4293, or you can email me at uh, bschultz, S-C-H-U-L-T-Z, at vision1.org, uh, or Ken Ferreira. He runs our lending division, and uh, we can you know, plug in whatever resources you need. As I mentioned, we're more about relationship and less about transactions. Well, that's fantastic. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Insight. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you have suggestions for something you would like to see us address in future episodes, then please send us an email at producer at insight-podcast.com. That's producer at insight-podcast.com. Well, that's all for today's show. This is John Marvin, and we want to thank you for listening.